0: This is a Saddleback Church Podcast. It truly is an honor uh, to be here with you as a guest. And, and I use that word guest, but I don't really feel like a guest. I know that, you know, you're just now meeting me, but I've known about you for a really long time. And I can remember when I was in college, and I just felt uh, the initial call by God to go into full-time ministry. didn't have any idea at all what I was doing or what I was getting myself into. And somebody handed me a book uh, uh, written by somebody, uh, maybe, maybe you've heard of him, his name was Rick Warren. And uh, it, it was the Purpose Driven Church. And I remember that was the first time I ever read that. It blew me away because it was just gave me a vision for what could be possible and encouraged God's calling upon my life. And this church has meant so much to me over the years. I remember uh, like 20-some odd years ago, when I was a struggling church planner, I visited this campus. I sat right over there, and I was so encouraged uh, by what I saw here. And so, I just want to thank you guys for that. And it's an honor to to be here with you. Uh, I brought a picture of my family just so we get to know each other a little bit better. Uh, this is my wife Lindsay and our four kids. Connor, Campbell, Kennedy, and Cadence. Our kids are 21, 19, 16, and 11. And I brought my 11-year-old Cadence with me this weekend. She's my travel buddy. And Lindsay and I will celebrate 25 years of marriage next summer. And I appreciate that. Now, one of the things that I've noticed being married to somebody that long is that we've rubbed off on each other. And uh, fortunately for me, some of her best qualities have rubbed off on me, like her wisdom and her poise and her character. And, uh, you know, unfortunately for her, you know, some of my qualities have rubbed off on her, like my kind of twisted sense of humor. And I'll give you an example of this. Uh, Several years ago, I was standing in my office, middle of the day, in between meetings. I kind of caught my breath. I kind of walked over to the window, and I'm sort of looking out. And my wife walked out the front doors of our church. I wasn't expecting her there that day. And she was walking away from me towards her truck. And so I pulled out my phone, and I texted her real quick, and I said, hey, babe, standing in my office, watching you walk to your vehicle, uh, you look beautiful today, uh, see you tonight. You know, hit send. I thought, you know, I was feeling pretty good about myself. And she texted me back a couple seconds later, and she said, well, thank you, that's very sweet, um, but I'm at home right now. (laughs) Who are you looking at? Have you ever had one of those moments when just everything slowed way down? And I'm panicking in the moment. Like, I don't know. I didn't know what to do next. Like, my inclination was to run back to the window and look again. But I was like, I can't do that. You know, and so I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm just like in this moment of panic. And so she texted me back again, one word, gotcha. Man, she did. She did. And in that moment, there was only one word that I said in response to that. I was like, wow, like, wow, like, what just happened? Now, that word wow, W-O-W, is a word that we often use when we are struggling to try to uh, express something that we are seeing and experiencing that is amazing. So, like, if you're looking at a beautiful sunset on the beach, you, you might say just you know, if you go to your favorite restaurant and you take a bite of your favorite dessert, you may shake your head and go, man, wow. Uh, you're holding a, a newborn for the first time, and this this beautiful child, you just might look at this amazing miracle and just go, wow. Now, what I want to do together in our time today, I know that you're wrapping up a series on worship called Worthy of It All. And Pastor Andy's done an amazing job walking through this. I've actually joined with you online from Indianapolis uh, through this whole series. And today what I want to do as we wrap this up is I want to just simply present to you from the scriptures that worship is taking the wow that is already in our hearts and directing it towards the one who is worthy of it all. And when we say worthy of it all, what we mean by that is the one that is that can provide uh, this sort of uh, durability to our lives when we go through trials, difficulties, and tribulations. The reason why he is worthy of it all is that he strengthens the ground under our feet when we go through challenging times. So to do this, I wanna take you to a passage of scripture in Revelation chapter four. If you have a Bible or a device with the Bible on it, Go ahead and meet me there in Revelation 4. Let me just give you a little bit of a picture as to what's going on here in this passage. There's a guy named John who has been exiled to the island of Patmos, and Jesus shows up to reveal some things to John. That's where we get the word revelation. Revelation, I know, is kind of a, you know kind of a scary book to read, but really in its simplest form, it is a revealing, it's about two things. It's about Jesus and it's about worship. And it's a revealing of who Jesus is to John. Here's what John's doing. He is furiously writing down everything Jesus is revealing to him. And the things that he is seeing and experiencing are almost indescribable. John is trying to describe the indescribable. That's why Revelation sounds so foreign to our ears. It's written in an apocalyptic kind of literature. One of his favorite words, and we're going to see it in the passages today that we unpack, is the word Like. He goes, I'm, I'm looking at something that Jesus is revealing to me, and it's like this. I don't know how to describe it. It's like that. And so pick it up with me in verse 1 of chapter 4. This experience of worship in the throne room of God. John writes, then as I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven, and the same voice I had heard before spoke to me, here's the word, like a trumpet blast. So here's what John is saying. Jesus spoke and it sounded like a trumpet blast. Question, when Jesus speaks, does he speak trumpet? Like does his voice sound like a trumpet? Well, I don't think so because that would be sort of like you know, inaudible or, or you, know, you wouldn't understand what he was saying. Here's what John is getting at. When Jesus speaks, it is distinct like a trumpet blast. In other words, when you hear a trumpet, you're not mistaking that trumpet sound for a snare drum you know that's a trumpet. When Jesus speaks, you know that's his voice. And John goes on in verse two and he says, and instantly, I was in the spirit. This is this idea that as we gather together for a worship experience like this, that we might be in the spirit because the spirit is here whether we recognize it, realize it or not. And he says, and I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it, that someone would be Jesus. Now, the the imagery of a throne is largely lost on us, I think, as a culture, because as I look around, um, uh, I think I'm about the only one standing. There might be a couple of you, but most of you are sitting on a throne. Now, we don't necessarily call it that, but that's what it is. You walked into a room, you found a place to sit down, and that kind of gives you a, a sense of identity, a sense of security, a sense of place, But in the first century, people rarely sat on thrones. They either squatted or reclined. The thrones were only reserved for four kinds of people. Kings who ruled the nation, judges who rendered a verdict, warriors who conquered an enemy, and priests who mediate between God and men. Jesus is sitting on this throne. He is all four of those things. He is a king, a judge, a warrior, and a priest. And as he says in verse three, the one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as as gemstones like jasper and carnelian, and the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. So uh, get the image in your head, Jesus is sitting on this throne and there's all this color coming out from the throne. Jasper is sort of like a clear stone, you could think a diamond. It represents the purity and holiness of God. Carnelian is like a reddish sort of stone, it represents the judgment of God. And then you've got this emerald, which is sort of a greenish color. And all of this sort of makes up this multicolored, almost like a rainbow encircling the throne, reminiscent of the promise God gave to Noah that he would never flood the earth again. So God is a God who keeps his promises. John chapter 8 describes Jesus as the light of the world. Now just think about this image in your head. As John describes this, Jesus is sitting on a throne, All of this color wrapped around him. And color is amazing because God is a creative God and color evokes feeling and emotion. Any of you ever painted a room in your house and after that project was done, it just changed the whole vibe of the room because color serves a purpose. And here we see in the throne room of God during this worship experience that Jesus is revealing to John, he uses all of this Color that's like hitting these gemstones and bouncing all around. You can almost think like, you know, disco ball. And that's part of the reason why in a gathering like this we'll use lights in the worship experience. Not because we're trying to copy rock concerts in culture, but because we're trying to emulate the throne room experience in Revelation 4. And in verse 4 it says 24 Thrones surrounded him, and 24 elders sat on them. They were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their heads. Now, who are these elders, these 24 elders? Well, my opinion, based on something Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 19, is that these elders represent the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament and the 12 disciples in the New. And then in verse 5, it says, From the throne came flashes of lightning and the rumble of thunder. And then in verse 5, in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. This is the sevenfold spirit of God. Sevenfold spirit of God. In short, is this idea of the multifaceted way that the Holy Spirit wants to meet you in this place. It's the idea that the Holy Spirit's work in your life right now, even though we might be sitting in a crowd of people is tailor-made to you. Here's what that means. Is that you might have thought that showing up today was just sort of a chance thing, but it was not by chance. The Holy Spirit's been wooing you. He's been uh, pursuing you and orchestrating the events of your life just for this moment if you are alert enough to be aware of what he wants to say and how he wants to move in your life. The Holy Spirit knows what kind of a week you've had. The Holy Spirit knows what maybe nobody else knows you're going through. The Holy Spirit knows that maybe your marriage is hanging by a thread. He knows that you're going through financial strain or stress. He knows you almost didn't show up or tune in today. And if you are alert and aware to what it is the Holy Spirit wants to do, the work that he wants to do in your life, whether that is to challenge and convict you or encourage and comfort you, it's tailor-made. And then in verse 6, it says, In front of the throne was a shiny Sea of glass, sparkling like crystal. The image that I get in my mind, have you ever been to the lake real, real early in the morning before any boats or wave runners have been out and it's just calm like glass? So get this image in your mind, you got the throne, all the color, the 24 elders around Jesus, the sea of glass going out across the throne. What does that represent? Let me just give you three quick things. If you're jotting down some notes, you might write these down. This sea of glass around the throne represents, first of all, the fact that God is in control. And I don't know about you, as we just look at all of the world events that have been going on lately, I need to be reminded of the fact that in a world that seems out of control, God is in control. That he rules with his feet up. He is sovereign. He didn't, he didn't ever turn on the news and go, whoa, didn't see that coming. He's always aware. God is in control. Now, the sea in the ancient world was dangerous and unpredictable they didn't have sonar and radar so if you put loved ones on a boat and you sent them out to sea the chances were high you would never see them again but here in the throne room of God he has calmed the waters around the throne number two God is approachable In the ancient world, the sea is what separated people and nations. But here we see this sort of like translucent flooring and the idea that God has calmed the waters so all may approach his throne. Sort of reminiscent of something that we read in Hebrews 4 when the author of Hebrews says that we can approach, those of us in Christ can approach the throne of God's grace with confidence. I love that. We don't have to approach God's throne tentatively. We can approach with confidence. You know who can walk into my office anytime with confidence is my kids. Man, they don't need a reason to come in. They don't need to knock on the door. They don't need to apologize. They have full access to me. And God says, all are welcome here. The last thing is that, and this is gonna sound a little strange, but I want you to go with me on this. God is all about the acoustics. So God is in control. God says all can come. And then God is all about the acoustics. What does calm water do? It amplifies sound. Sound bounces off of the waters. Uh, Listen to David as he writes these words in Psalm 150. He says, praise the Lord. Praise him with a blast of the ram's horn. Praise him with the lyre and harp. Praise him with the tambourine and dancing. Praise him with strings and flutes. Praise him with a clash of cymbals. Praise him with loud clanging cymbals. Question, is there anything in that list you can do? Quietly. Can you blast the ram's horn? Quietly. Can you clash the cymbals? Quietly. No, it's all kind of one volume. And this is within all of us. There's this thing in us that when we hear something that or experience something that's pleasing, we we wanna turn it up. Uh, how many of you, when you're in your car by yourself driving down the road, beautiful day, your favorite song comes on the radio? What's your natural inclination? You, see, yeah, you don't reach over and turn it down, you crank it up. And there, that's, that, that's, a, that's how God has sort of wired us up in this worship experience. Now, let me finish out the passage, the last two verses, verse 10. It says, The 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive three things, glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and they exist because you created what you pleased. What a powerful sentence, and what an amazing experience. This image right here of of these 24 elders that are around Jesus And they take off their crowns and they lay them before him and they fall down and they worship. It's such a powerful one because um, they could have begun to delude themselves into thinking that because they had the box suites in the throne room, you know, they're sitting courtside, they could have been tempted to think that they were more important than what they really were. But instead they take off their crowns, they lay them before Jesus. Here's what they were doing. They were recognizing that this worship experience was not about them. It was all about him because he is worthy of it all. Wow, wow. Now here's what I wanna do in the remainder of our time is that that is John having revealed to him by Jesus this worship experience in the throne room of God. And I don't know how many times I have allowed my, maybe my background or my, the wiring of my personality to inform my worship experience rather than what God's word has to say about it. And just from my observation as a Christian and just my observation as a pastor, I think that many of us do this. Like When it comes to the worship gathering, now, uh, please hear me. I know that uh, worship is more than just this gathering where we sing songs. Worship is a lifestyle. It happens outside these walls and by the way that we live our lives. But when we gather together, as we gather together, and we sing some songs, oftentimes the way that we view this experience is more informed either by the church tradition or background that we had, if you grew up in church, or our personality, styles, and preferences. And I'm not necessarily saying those things are wrong. They could actually be very right and good, but if it's more informed by those things rather than the word of God, then it may not be accurate or helpful. So let me offer you a definition as well as just a few observations. And I know that Pastor Andy's given you a great definition of worship, and I'd like to contribute um, my own to that just so you sort of have in your toolbox for reference later. Here it is, if you're taking notes. Worship, it just means to love, to show admiration or affection. That's what it is. Worship is a response to something that we value the most. It reveals what we already adore. And you were made to do this. You were made, you were created to worship. And I know right now, maybe some of you are kind of pushing back on me and you're arguing with me under your breath, which is like the best arguments to have because you always win. But if I know some of you are pushing back going, no, 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 I'm not made to worship. And once again, let, let me just say, I'm speaking to the Christians right now in the room. You, you were made to worship and you go, no, I wasn't. I don't like to sing. And I actually didn't say anything at all about singing. You were made to love. You were made to show admiration. You were made to show affection. You were made to do this. You're doing it all the time. And by the way, you're really good at it too. The reason why I can say that so confidently is because I see it everywhere now that I know this definition. I see people expressing love, admiration, and affection all the time they're taking that wild wow that's in their heart and they're aiming it to all kinds of things it's just those things aren't durable enough to sustain you so um my 16 year old daughter she is a huge swifty and so back in may i took her to a taylor swift concert in nashville tennessee it was me and something like i don't know 250,000 teenage girls it was frightening it was frightening uh, but we had a good time and uh man the whole time i'd snap a picture of the arena that night and guys as i'm looking around It was a worship experience. Now, we weren't in church, and we weren't singing songs to God, but it was a worship experience. How can I say that? Because I saw a whole bunch of people showing some love, some affection, and some admiration, get this, for nearly four hours straight. Like, nobody was looking at their watch. Nobody was bored. Nobody was bowing out early. They were losing their minds singing at the top. My daughter lost her voice the next day. I was covered in glitter It was a worship experience. Now, uh, you know, maybe Taylor Swift isn't your thing, but I've been to ball games, whether that's an American football game or uh, baseball or whatever, and I've seen grown men, like grown, sophisticated men lose their minds. Like just take off their shirts, paint their chests, you know, high five, because somebody ran a ball into an end zone. What, What are they doing? They're worshiping. We don't think about it like that because they're in an arena, we're not in church, we're not singing to God, but they're showing some love, some affection, and some admiration. And it just naturally flows out of you without even thinking about it. That when you clap, when you fist bump, when you sing out loud, when you cheer, you are worshiping. And oftentimes we may not make that connection, but that's exactly what you're doing. So here's the question. It isn't whether you're going to worship. But what are you worshiping? And everyone has something in your life. Everyone where your money, your time, your passion, your energy, your thoughts, it just naturally flows towards those things that you love and have affection for. Man, if you watch an amazing series of shows on Netflix, I guarantee you, you're telling other people about it. You're showing it some love, some affection, some admiration. Man, you, you just think about your favorite dessert It's your favorite restaurant. You're, you're going, oh, man, you guys, you've got to try this. This is to die for. You go on an incredible vacation with some family or friends. You come back. You're telling everybody about it. What are you doing? You're worshiping. You're showing that thing some love and some affection and some admiration. And here's the deal. None of that is bad. But if we're not careful, we can give our most authentic worship everywhere else except for the one who's worthy of it all well how should we worship what what should the form be you know should it be uh, a little bit more contemplative and reserved should it be contemporary and more expressive you know should it be you know with instruments or no instruments hand raising and clapping this is my favorite should it just be the groomsmen pose you know, where you just kind of stand there, you're just kind of like in the groomsman pose, sort, sort of unaffected, non-expressive in that time. There's so many opinions and perspectives about this, not necessarily good or bad, right or wrong, but um, it's, it's been more informed by what we're comfortable with our personalities or our backgrounds rather than what God's Word teaches. So what does God's Word teach about it? Well, Do you know there are seven words in the Hebrew for worship and praise? Seven words. My favorite is found in Psalm 34, verse one. It says this, uh, I will extol the Lord at all times. His tehillah will always be on my lips. And some of you just perked up. You're like, oh, I think I like that one. Tell me more about that one. I said tehillah. but that's, that's a different one, all right? So, so, so that, that's, that's my favorite word for, for worship in the Hebrew is tehillah. Uh, this is the most common. The most common one is the word halal. If it sounds familiar, it's because it's the root word for hallelujah. And it means this, to shine, to make a show, to boast. I love this, to be clamorously foolish. When was the last time you were just clamorously foolish in public? To rave or to celebrate. Now that sounds like more something you would experience more in a nightclub, a concert, or a, a, a ball game of some kind than you would in the in the church. But this is the most common description in the Hebrew for worship and praise and what that should look like towards God. Look at Psalm chapter forty-seven, verses one through two. David writes, "Come, everyone! This is an all skate. Come, everyone! Clap your hands, shout to God with joyful praise. Why?" for the Lord most high is awesome. And I just want you to know this, that when you do that, you're not being weird, you're being obedient. In Psalm chapter 63, verse four, it says, I will praise you as long as I live, lifting up my hands to you in prayer and some of you may be thinking that makes me so uncomfortable this whole idea of like being expressive and clapping and raising my hands is really really uncomfortable I want you to know a couple things that this posture right here uh, says two things number one it says I I surrender I'm letting go God I'm coming empty-handed before you second thing this posture reminds me of I've raised four kids I taught all four of them or I watched all four of them take their first steps, this was the posture that they had when they were learning to walk. And it was wobbly, and sometimes they fell, and it, but they were looking at me, and they were holding up their hands towards me. Do you know the most common analogy in the scriptures for your growth as a Christ follower is a walk? And some of us kind of stumble around, and we're not very sturdy, but we're holding up our hands, especially when we're, we don't have confidence in our walk towards our Heavenly Father. And some of you may be like, you know, that just makes me really uncomfortable because I'm not a very expressive person. Have you ever, um, you, you know, you don't need to you know, admit this out loud, but have you ever like, looked around the room and just judged other people's worship? Yeah, me neither, I right? me neither, right? <laughs> Speaking hypothetically, but you ever looked around and you're like, you know, man, that person that's like so expressive and raising their hands. Have you ever just inside, you're just like, man, I just kind of feel like they're showboating. I just kind of feel like they're drawing all this kind of attention to them. And and I don't really need to do all that. Have you ever said this? Um, Because uh, God already knows my heart. And I would agree with that. I don't think what you're saying is inaccurate. God does know your heart. There's just two things that I would just ask you to consider. The first is this. Be consistent. And the second thing is reconsider what being expressive says to the other person. Here's what I mean. Be consistent. Uh, so if you, I'm speaking to Christians, all right? So if you come into the gathering and, uh, you know, you're just kind of like, oh, I'm kind of uncomfortably expressive, and you just kind of do the groomsman pose, you know, the whole time. And you're just kind of standing here, kind of somewhat stoic and reserved. Uh, but then you and I go to a ball game later that afternoon, and when your team scores a touchdown, you lose your mind. I'm gonna like just ask some questions, all right? About consistency. Right, now, if you go to the ball game and they score a touchdown, they win the game, and you're just standing there like this, I'd be like, "Sweet, we're good to go." All right, you're being <laughs> consistent. All right, you're being consistent. All right, here's the, here's the second thing: is never underestimate being what being expressive does to the relationship. Here's what I mean. Uh, my flight's gonna get into Indianapolis tonight at 11.05, and let's just say when I get home, my wife and my, my other daughters are kind of huddled around the Kitchen Islands, kind of where they hang out as a family, and I walk in, I haven't seen them for several days, and when I walk in, they don't turn around to greet me, they don't smile, they don't come over and give me a hug and a kiss and say, hey, how was your trip, it's so good to see you. They just kind of like, they, they act like I'm not even there. And if I'm like, hey guys, uh, hello, you know, this, yeah, I'm here, you know, the revelation of Aaron Brockett, you know, it's i I'm here, and, and if they, they, they say, oh, oh, we were doing all of those things just in our hearts. And I'd be like, man, that is fantastic, but I'd love if you would show me. And I just want to lovingly encourage you in that is to just recognize that here's the other thing. If it's uncomfortable for you, that might be a good thing. Because as the elders did, they took off their crowns before Jesus because he's the one who's worthy of it all. It isn't about you. It isn't about you. It is about him. You see, worship is the result of a decision that you make, not a feeling that you have. And I think that for so many of us, we're waiting for the feeling to come, and usually the feeling comes when we feel pretty good, you know, when life is going pretty well. And then, and then I think I'll, I'll, I'll worship. But no, actually, it's a decision that you make, by the way, maybe when life seems like it's falling apart, and then the feeling comes. One of the primary themes of the Psalms in the Old Testament, is that David writes not to activate a soul that wasn't worshiping, he was writing to aim a soul that already was worshiping towards the right thing, the one who is worthy of it all. And some of you may say, I I just don't feel like it. And I would say, in those moments, that's when you need to worship more than ever. You make the decision to do so, and then the feelings come. Worry is when you look at all of your problems and you go, wow. When your problems consume you, that's worship. Envy is when you look at what everyone else has and you go, wow, that's worship. It's consuming you. Anxiety is when you look at whatever it is that's threatening your peace and you go, wow. Worship is when you look at God, the only one who is worthy of it all, and you go, wow. Some of you may be like, okay, okay, I I get all that. But practically, why? Why should we worship? Let me give you three things and I'll be done. Here's the first one. God asks for it. Those of you who know your Bibles really well, you know that I've actually tamed that down quite a bit because he doesn't ask, he actually commands it. He commands those of us who have been ransomed and redeemed by the sacrifice of Jesus that we worship. And maybe some of you don't like that. You're like, why would God command that we worship? Is he really that insecure? No, he's just that powerful. He knows that you're already worshiping. The question is, is are you worshiping the thing that is durable enough to carry you through life's storms? And if you're not, the most loving thing an all powerful God can do is say, lay it on me. Let me make your feet secure through these storms. Now, have you ever just been like, well, I would worship, but I'm mad at God right now because I'm looking at the condition of the world, and if I was God, I'd do things so differently. And I'm reminded of the words of J. Vernon McGee who said, and only the way that he can say it, this is God's universe and he does things his way. Now you may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. That's that's a pretty good point. That's a pretty good point. So you need it. Here's the second thing. Those around you need it. Look at Ephesians 5, 18 through 19. It says, instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to who? To, To one another. With psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. So this is this idea that in the gathering like this, that ministry is up, down, all around. It's 360. It's not somebody on a platform going out this way. It's us ministering to each other. You all have a ministry that the pastors on this platform may never have. And it comes as you express worship. It comes as you allow the Holy Spirit to work through you. See, what you need to realize today is that this isn't a transaction where you come to church and just get something out of this. Now, I hope you do get something out of it, but it's way more than this. It's actually what you bring to it and you will receive what you invest. Somebody walked in here today and their faith tank is totally on empty and they need to borrow some faith from the people around them. Somebody walked in here today wondering if all this is real And they need to see some authenticity from you when no lights and no cameras are on you. Somebody walked in here today needing to see an example of somebody who is passionately following Jesus because they've been hurt by those who have been hypocritical and they've just never seen that authenticity before and that passion before and they need to see it in the people around them. Somebody walked in here today, they just found out that their marriage is over, the biopsy came back positive, they walked in here full of fear, anxiety, and no hope and they need to look around because they're looking to see if this is real. I want you to know that one of the most challenging things about being a pastor is knowing that I got to preach every weekend, especially when I am in a spiritual desert. And I've been in a couple. Or when I've just had a rough week, or maybe Lindsay and I aren't getting along very well, or I'm just spiritually dry, or God seems silent, and my church is expecting me to stand up and deliver fresh bread from God's word. That is so challenging. And there have been multiple weekends over the years where I've driven to the church dreading it because I was like, I'm just so dry. I don't have anything to give. And I've lost count of the times when I've sat right there on the front row during the worship time when the worship of our people filled me up so that I could preach that day. So those around you need it. Here's the last thing. You need it. You need it whether you realize it or not. See, we don't worship Because we feel like it, we worship in order to feel like it. We worship to remind ourselves of who God is and what he's done. Forgetfulness is the greatest enemy of faith. It's when we forget what God has done that we stop believing what God might do. And so as a Christ follower filled by his spirit, if you are not moved to worship, here's what that means. That means that you've forgotten who you are and you've forgotten who he is. And you've forgotten where you would be without him and what he did for you. And so here's what you're doing when you're worshiping, when you don't feel like it. You're refusing to forget it. If you come in here and maybe this is all kind of new to you and you kind of look around, you're like, man, what's all the singing and the clapping and the hand raising about? What, What is that? Well, they are just remembering who God is, what he's done, who they used to be, now who they are in Jesus, they're refusing to forget it. What you may not know about that man standing behind you singing really loud and off key, by the way, is that he used to be in prison and now he's been set free. He's got a new lease on life. He's refusing to forget it. What you may not know about that woman who keeps both hands up in the air, the entire song set with her eyes closed. She's not showboating. She's not trying to draw attention to herself. You need to realize that she struggled with an eating disorder. God set her free and totally healed her. She's refusing to forget it. What you may not know about that guy that claps through the whole service and says amen during the sermon in all the wrong places is that last year his wife walked out on him, but this year they walked in hand in hand. It was a miracle, he refuses to forget it. What you may not know about that teenage girl who actually steps out into the aisle, drops to her knees and bows down during the worship experiences that she used to self-harm and God totally healed her and gave her a new hope and a new purpose. She refuses to forget it. And we worship because if we don't, we will just turn our love and admiration and affection towards someone or something else that is not worthy of it all in the sense that they cannot sustain us through all of life's storms. Guys, can I just tell you, there is nothing in this life that will carry you through every season of your life like worship will. And I'm just telling you, if you're not in a storm, one's coming. We always like are so surprised when it happens. Like we're like, where in the world did this happen? There's just gonna be one wave, one storm after another because life is preparing you. It's developing your character into Christ-likeness for an eternity with him. And Jesus promised us, in this world, you will have trouble. So how do you navigate the troubles? Man, you worship your way through them. Like if you're, you're, here, I just try this uh, as just an example. Like the next time you have just a really, really crummy day, Uh, get really mad about it or complain about it or make the decision to just go, you know what, I'm just gonna be really grateful and joyful today. I'm just gonna worship my way through this. At the end of the day, write down how you feel. I guarantee you, you'll have a better day even though your circumstances are hard than if you choose to just be complain and to be angry about it. Because when you worship, that is the way that God strengthens your feet to navigate unstable ground. Habakkuk chapter three, verses 17 through 19. I wanna wrap up just with this passage. The author of Habakkuk writes, though the fig tree does not bud, in other words, the deal fell through, and there are no grapes on the vines. In other words, we can't get pregnant. Though the olive crop fails, the 401k is down, and the fields produce no food, I cannot find a job. Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, my grown kids are no longer walking with the Lord and they refuse to talk to me. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Now here's the deal. When was the last time that you prayed asking God to give you the feet of a deer? (laughs) It sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? I I can't recall. Well, Lord God, please make my feet like the feet of a deer. I've never seen that on a coffee cup or a hoodie. (laughs) What is that all about? Well, have you ever seen those nature shows where a mountain goat is way up on this like peak, this uneven peak, and it just almost looks like he's attached there by Velcro because he's got these like strength in his hind legs to scale these treacherous heights. That's what that passage is talking about. Have you ever noticed that in the scriptures, the people who worship the most passionately are the ones who had just lost everything? Job comes to mind. And I think that for many of us, we think, you know what? When life settles down and I actually get the thing that I desire to have, whether that's a relationship or a raise or the house or whatever it may be, then I'll praise God. But actually he goes, no, I want you to worship your way through this storm. And as you do so, it'll strengthen your feet for the treacherous heights. So maybe let's start practicing as we come together to turn our attention towards the one who is worthy of it all. Father, we come to you today, and I want to go first and just asking for forgiveness. When I take the wow that is already in my heart and I aim it towards people, places, and things that are not worthy of it, in the sense that it's, they are not durable enough to sustain me through some of life's treacherous storms. Father, I pray that the work of your Holy Spirit would be tailor-made, that we would not move too quickly past this moment right here. I know that we've got busy days, we've got things we've gotta go do, but we're not doing them yet. We wanna stay in this moment just a little longer and we wanna ask your Holy Spirit to meet us right in this space and place right now. God, I pray that you would grab a hold of the attention of that person who's been sleepwalking through life, just on autopilot, They've been deaf to your voice. God, I pray you'd awaken them. I pray that you would alert them, you'd get their attention. God, I pray for that person that maybe realizes today that they've been giving their best worship maybe to a a spouse or to a career or to a hobby or to some sort of financial goals. And those things aren't bad in and of themselves, but it crushed the relationship, it crushed the career, it crushed their expectations because those things are not worthy of it all. We laid a weight on that that they were not designed to carry instead of laying it on you. So God, we wanna direct our attention to you today because you are the one is worthy of it all. And as we do so, God, I pray that you would radically transform lives today by the power of your presence. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Thank you for listening to this weekend message from Saddleback Church. If you like this, please consider leaving a rating or review for this podcast. The Saddleback Church Weekend Message Podcast is a part of the Saddleback Family of Podcasts. Visit saddleback.com slash podcasts or search for Saddleback Church in your favorite podcasting app to see more great podcasts from Saddleback. For more weekend message resources, visit saddleback.com slash message resources.